Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the February 2023 edition of Masters of the Universe. I'm Eric Kazatsky, Head of Municipal Strategy at Bloomberg Intelligence, and joined by my co-host, Karen Altamirano, also of Bloomberg Intelligence. Biggest issues in Muniland continue to revolve around rates and a tremendous lack of supply. To start the year, municipals have turned in fantastic performance. However, an increase in month-over-month CPI may very well be the catalyst to undo those returns. Thankfully, the technicals for municipals remain favorable to help keep any potential backsteps in check. To discuss these topics and more, we are joined today by Adam Stern, the co-head of research at Breckenridge Capital Advisors. For those unfamiliar, Breckenridge is a $42 billion asset manager and has long been considered one of the industry firsts for muni ESG and impact investing. Adam, welcome today. We're so happy you're here with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So listen, I'll be honest. I'm still recovering from this weekend. I'm a little bit of a funk given the Eagles loss, but in an effort just to make myself feel better, do you happen to know how the Patriots did this season? Uh, yeah, I think that should make you feel uh, a bit, <laughs> bit better. Yeah, I'm a Steeler fan. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Man after my own heart. I went to Pitt, so I do have some affinity for the other half of our state. But um, listen, we can get back to football in the end. Let's let's get into munis. There's been a lot of interesting things going on this year. Um, I want to start with rates and then sort of drill down from there. So we've had almost fully retraced the move in U.S. Treasuries from, I would say, December of last year, right? And the sharpest reversal is coming this month, and especially today with that CPI move. You know, what's your take on inflation and possibly the Fed's path uh, for the remainder of this year? Yeah, so I would say um, as a member of, of our investment committee here at Breckenridge, you know, our view has um, has been that the Fed would kind of stay on course, um, you know, until last um, uh, last Friday's jobs report. I think it was February 3rd or 4th. Yeah. That was. Um, you know, folks were getting a little uh, excited that, um, you know, inflation was going to come down quicker um, and uh, the labor market was maybe going to weaken a little faster. And uh, folks got a little out over their skis there and we candidly weren't weren't quite there. So the reversal we've seen in the last week or so has been sort of consistent with where, where we were headed. Um, but uh, but certainly the 30 basis point move um really kind of 20 basis points, it looks like, across the curve, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, pretty stark stark move, but frankly, consistent with just there's a lot of uncertainty around, um, you know, whether we're in a secular environment where we're going to have, you know, higher inflation for longer and uh, higher real rates for longer, or whether um, this COVID thing really is a transitory period. And maybe transitory just means, you know, two years instead of Instead of you know six months or whatever we originally thought transitory. Yeah. I mean, does it does it change anything in your purview with the you know the possibility that you know maybe ratios might look a little bit more attractive if you know municipals actually kind of follow the sell off here? I mean, we're unchanged today. Um, not entirely surprising. You know, we don't react that quick, but you know ratios have been pretty rich. Yeah. Um, you know, I think. I think it's possible we get some better ratios, just, you know, regression to the mean would suggest mm-hmm. you get some better entry points from a ratio perspective over the next, um, you know, few months. I think a broader um, theme, though, for us would be the idea that, um, you know, on a secular basis, actually, there are reasons to think um, ratios are kind of a little lower and should be a little lower than whatever they were Um pre-COVID or really even pre-2019. Yeah. Um, and and I think we kind of, you know, bought into that. So so that, you know, some of these ratios we're seeing are obviously extraordinarily low, multiple standard deviation events, but not yeah. not wholly out of the range of possibility, uh, having seen what we saw a few years ago, even before uh, before the pandemic hit. Hi, Adam. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, I want to pivot to investment strategy. SMAs are a hot topic that we've been covering in our annual Shifting Marketplace reports. 
in particular the growth in AOM for the product. What is your take on increased competition in the space and how has assets under management growth trajectory been for Breckenridge during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, I mean, interesting and good questions. So um, I mean, I think we think the SMA space still has some more room to grow um, and we're definitely um, you know, on board with the thesis that there's more you know, competition in the space. Um, our our own growth uh, during the pandemic um, was, I'd say, pretty good. Uh, last year, you know, like everyone else, uh, we did experience um, uh, some some outflows, but um, really not uh, not a downtick in you know number of accounts. Really, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of our experience uh, yeah. reduced AUM was just rates moving, um, and so. Uh, so if you look at our number of accounts that we have now, it's, it's meaningfully, um, uh, higher than before, before the pandemic. Okay. Is is, is that pose a real challenge for management? Um, you know, I've always viewed the SMA space as, as a really tricky beast, right? Because it could be like death by a thousand cuts in line items. And, you know, if your account sizes, you know, have sort of maintained, but the amount of accounts have increased, you know, how much more difficult does that become to manage? So I think it's, it's all doable with kind of a hyper focus on the product, um, uh, you know, reinvest in the company's, you know, profits into um, the technology and uh, uh, sometimes finding the people with the right quantitative backgrounds to help you just be efficient and in fine ways. Um, yeah. To continue to grow. That's 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 essentially what Breckenridge has done. You know, we're a, we're independently owned, which is which is a little unusual um, in the space. Um, but that does allow us to stay away from uh, the behavior that you often see with munis at some larger asset managers that have multiple asset classes, where you know the returns in munis are always going to be uh, kind of modest, right? And so mm-hmm. when capital gets redeployed. Oftentimes it doesn't get redeployed to be like, hey, let's make the absolute best SMA product we can possibly make in the yeah. market. And so Breckenridge has been able to shine in part because that's that's kind of what we've done for the last 25 years. I mean, could you expand upon that a little bit? Um, you know, I want to hear more about just sort of the approach to technology that you guys are instituting, um, as well as sort of the investment thesis that sort of focuses around development of new products. Yeah, so I think um, I can just speak for for SMAs uh, in general. It kind of bleeds over thematically into some of the ETF um, uh, um, flows that we've seen, which yeah. that um, you know the technology to make SMAs uh, possible have, has gotten a lot better over the last ten years, right? So oh, yeah. yep. in terms of trading, you know, small lots and all that and, and all that good stuff, I think. Um, you know, Breckenridge is still a big believer in uh, the idea of managed accounts. There's uh, part of, I think, the flows in the SMA space are flowing into uh, a lot of ladder strategies. And, you know, yeah. maybe there's a place for that, but there's a lot of challenges with doing um, laddered strategies, especially in the muni market where, you know, you're not going to have, um, you have a maturity and maybe it's not the best day to reinvest that uh, maturity, but per the rules, You've got to, you know, you've got to do, you've got to reinvest it. You know, it can happen for a state biased account. You know, you need New York paper, you need New Jersey paper, and it's just not available. But if you wait another, you know, week or two, you can find the right, um, the right bond. Um, and, uh, you know, at a better overall, um, you know, risk return uh, calculation. The tax loss um, harvesting is, is often much tougher to do in kind of a, in kind of a ladder um, as well. So, uh, there's a couple other sort of elements of that we could speak to, but, um, but the bottom line is like, you've got to sort of mix the humans, um, with the tech. And so a lot of what, what our systems are designed to do is to kind of, uh, help our, uh, portfolio managers kind of identify the best bond for, um, for, uh, each account, um, on the given day. And then, uh, you know, figuring out, um, uh, how to prioritize uh, those accounts, which are, you know, it's a lot of algorithms, uh, but it's um, 
there's a there's a good deal of human judgment that's in there too and it's kind of it's kind of mixing both together to find kind of the best overall management of that um one advantage to growing um we did experience last year um which is on the tax lost harvesting side which is you can do tax loss crossing uh between accounts so um which is very helpful given the fact that the market hasn't grown um uh, all that much and so that's something where um it's really only doable if you have a critical mass of um uh of accounts to to help match up i mean that trade really saved a lot of managers last year right i mean just just the ability to sort of you know harvest those losses yeah. you know are, are is there any concern that we're not going to be able to sort of repeat or, or sort of pull any rabbits out of a hat in the same way this year well i think with yields up right hopefully that that kind of um ameliorates uh, from a from a return perspective um you know when you had you had really low um uh, uh, yields, and then you have everything falls out of bed, and one way to get some of the returns back is to yeah. tax loss harvest. You know, I think now that the yields are up, it's just kind of prospective returns. I'd also say, to the degree that we buy into, you know, a thesis that on a secular basis, like we're going to have real yields of some degree, and um, possibly we, you know, rates even go up a little bit more from here. Um, there's probably going to be a little bit more volatility as well. So there may be certain accounts, depending on when they got invested, et cetera, um, you know, especially as accounts mature over the next 24, 36 months. Yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned that there was you know, some outflows last year, completely understandable. But I mean, you know, does that also get a little confusing because you had this move in rates that a lot of people haven't seen in their careers, right? And, and really was an opportunity to lock in income streams almost discount prices. Are you surprised that you didn't see more of a move to just sort of grab munis, you know, let's say like late summer of last year? Yeah. Well, I mean, we saw, I mean, it felt a little short lived candidly. I mean, there was, you know, secretary, <laughs> you know, people were buying, um, it feels like pretty much all year long, uh, really just the primary that, that, that wasn't, um, that wasn't coming. And as I mentioned, I mean, again, like when we look at our AUM, like we didn't really, you know, it was all just rate moves that, you know, these bonds. So um, I think people were pretty excited when you get back to about, I want to say it was maybe August of last year. Um, that's kind of when you sort of could start to notice more folks being like, Hey, wait a minute, these, these yields are actually look kind of good. And yeah. the credit profile for the muni market, Everybody's telling me he's okay. You know, um, we started to get the flows in there. Additionally, it's subtle, um, but I do think one of the overlooked elements of SMAs are, you know, you got transparency, um, you know, in the ESG space, you know, we can talk about that. People like to know the use of proceeds, et cetera. Um, the, uh, oftentimes you get some access, you know, it's more, it's a little bit more high touch, you can, but, but clients like to, like to feel and touch the, you know, the bonds they hold. But part of that is owning a maturity. And last year, given just outflows in whatever it was, you know, stock funds, bond funds, whatever, um, yeah. I think subtly started to appreciate the value of a maturity, right? Like part of when people say you should have some bonds and you should have some stock, um, that in the modern world has kind of been distilled down to bond fund, stock fund, right? Um, or bond ETF, stock ETF. And that maybe is not quite as much of a, of, of, you know, in an ideal world, what that mix should really be. And that maturity just gives you, you don't need the market to get, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, you're not, you're not reliant um, on, on having to, to sell out of your, of your fund at a share price that you don't want. You can just wait, wait for the yeah. market. Um, and there's value in that, um, you know. It's not well recognized by kind of modern portfolio theory, but like the way at least retail investors certainly behave in our market is they find some value in that. Well, look, I mean, value is sort of this catch-all term and you mentioned not doing ladders. So therefore that makes me think more towards active management, which is always a good thing. And, and I guess the next question I would have is, 
you know, are you guys able to flip between relative value opportunities? Because there's been a lot of times during the last, let's say, 14 months where municipals just haven't made a lot of sense in the context of ratios. And, you know, how do you view that relationship and make investment decisions between taxables and exempts, especially inside 10 years, you know, when those sort of, you know, flip flops happen? Yeah. So we've got, yeah. So um, as I mentioned, you know, you, you, you use some technology to kind of help you with um, when you're managing a decent number of accounts. Um, and uh, so we do sort of have some cutoffs where we think like, hey, buying a treasury in 18 months or, you know, two years makes way more sense than just given how far um, uh, beyond any any reasonable sense uh, the, the, the ratio has gotten, you know, especially often at the front end. Um, so we'll... You know, you can cross over into a, a, a treasury and do that. Um, it's definitely something we allow for in our accounts and, and we'll do. Um, you know, it can make sense further out the curve as well. I think it gets a little more challenging further out the curve just because um, you have a lot more exposure to a lot more variables in terms of the total return math if the market sure. is on you. Um, you know, we like to, Breckenridge, we're not, um, we're not typically managing for total return, you know, we're tactically trade when we, when it makes sense and, and mm-hmm. but um, but for the most part most of our clients are you know doing this for for income and um, generation more so than they are um, you know on a, on a total return basis so moonies are great for right principal preservation right and current income <laughs> right right let's uh let's stick with technology for a second yep uh what increased influence are you seeing for open ai when it comes to municipal analysis especially with the push for standardized reporting yeah so you're talking about like the chat gpt kind of thing is that yeah and even some of the the sort of you know federal pushes and you know for standardized reporting like how do you how do you see all this sort of impacting the industry i mean i can take the the FDTA piece of that first, I think that's where you're going. The yep. Financial Data Transparency Act. Yeah, it sounds like mm-hmm. a two-parter. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so I'm I'm in the camp on the FDTA that um, it's kind of the juice isn't worth the squeeze really there. Um, you know, it, it'll, it'll be fun to have. I mean, it'll be cool if we actually get, get it. It looks like, you know, they've set it up so that... Um, the you know the GFOA and uh, state and local issuers can say, throw some sand into the gears of the of actually getting this up and running, um, but fundamentally, I mean, I I just don't think it's going to be a big um, value add. So the the reasons for that are um, if if you give one is the non standardization of of so it doesn't require right New Jersey or Indiana school districts to get the mm-hmm. gap accounting right so. Um, so that's kind of a miss. Um, the other piece though, is even if you did the average retail investor for whom ostensibly this is supposed to help is never going to read these financial statements. <laughs> so, so you don't say <laughs> if they try to yeah. be befuddled, even if they're an accountant, um, yes. it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's uh Gatsby. It's not FASB. It takes a little while to digest. Um, yeah. And even if they understand that, then you have to translate that into sort of a credit um, uh, evaluation, which which isn't really clear. And ostensibly, the issuers that's supposed to benefit most are kind of these smaller issuers. Um, but I would submit, you know, look, you're spe- it's 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 supposed to cost about two billion, right? Like, I mean, you, that's that's about. I'm trying to do the math on that. Like, if it was. Uh, you know, if it's 50,000 for a rating, I mean, the point is we can give thousands of small issuers just pay S&P to rate them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But, and that's going to improve your liquidity a heck of a lot better than any transparent. Uh, that, that it's a great point. The other yeah. one, like, so, so, um, you know, I think the bond banks, the SRFs are flush with uh, cash. They're going to earn more interest on reserves in a higher rate environment. Like, um, the cost, so to me, the cost of going direct, you know, through a through a bond bank certainly is probably even lower, which sends, suggests you may shrink the market. So, you know, who benefits from this? Like my view is, if you're a data provider, you benefit from this, right? Like like maybe Bloomberg does, you know, for their the the, the financials they they put out. 
um, uh, they make available but on their on their um, uh, platform, um, maybe some others. But um, you know, I mean, it's look more for someone like me. More more data is always better. I just don't really see um, I, I don't really see the the whole value add yeah. in it. Uh, and my sense is it's just not. It's just they're they're going to throw sand in the gears. Like it's not actually yeah. going to it's not actually going to happen. Um, the other piece of it, the chat GPT thing, that's a really interesting question. That's the kind of the first, I, I, maybe that's not what you meant when you said open AI, but that's the first thing. No, I, that was where I was going with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there's so many interesting applications and, and look, I mean, like you and I sort of share the same opinion when it comes to the standardized reporting. And I, and I don't know, just from a pure credit standpoint, I think the more interesting opportunity is in the alternative data sets when it comes to munis, right? Yeah. And how OpenAI can sort of be leveraged to basically interpret all this data. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I guess where, we'll see where it goes. It's so early. I, yeah. Full disclosure, I have definitely gone on there and said, um, write a credit opinion for Puerto Rico. Write a credit opinion for <laughs> the etiquette, right? And just yeah. what happens. Um, yeah. Also, um, uh, you know, I've done a lot of writing on municipal bankruptcy. I wanted to see if it could do that. Was, that was actually. Yeah. Um, I actually had to craft all the questions for the podcast today. So, yeah, okay. so how are we doing so far? No, I'm kidding. So, um, I think there will be a role for it. I think your uh, initial comments about like for reporting, I think there could definitely be a use for um, client reporting, that kind of thing. I also think there's a huge potential for a garbage in garbage out on this kind of stuff. Um, and that, uh, you know, I, I won't say I really fully understand, um, exactly how those algorithms work, but yeah, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's, um, more, uh, homogeneity in terms of these chat bots responses to questions, uh, over time, which is just more and more chat bots having roughly the same. Well, six of one, you know, six of this, half a dozen of this. Yep. Um, I, so, um, and like any technology, like it's all, it's all looking backwards. It, it doesn't do a great job looking forwards, at least from these, these large language, um, you know, deep learning uh, approaches. So that's problematic too. Like they're not going to give you a good answer. Like, Hey, uh, there's been a pandemic. Um, which, you know, bonds should I look at first in my portfolio, airports or dedicated tax bonds or hospitals? Like, like <laughs> yeah. they're not going to be able to answer that question for you. So there's going to be a role for, you know, portfolio management and, and credit analysts and the rest of it. But there's definitely going to be something there. Let's talk about uh, ESG. Breckenridge has been doing this sort of investing before it was cool. Let us... Uh, Tell us a little about how this approach started for the firm and what successes you found. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So Breckenridge has been doing this for 10 or 11 years now, I would say. Yeah, I guess 11. Um, and, uh, you know, we found it. It's, it's helpful. It helps us. The integrated ESG part helps us get to know our borrowers better. Um, you know, so about 10, 11 years ago, uh, we kind of started looking around and discovering, you know, there were places collecting data that you didn't see elsewhere, right? Whether it was, um, you know, just the census Gini coefficient, which you didn't see in Merit, right? Or, or any of these other, uh, uh, you know, general databases you see now. Um, there were violent crime numbers you could get. You could go to the EPA. You could get um, water quality figures. You know, you could get this kind of stuff. You could go to Centers for Medicaid and Medicare and you could find, find the information. So... Now, the cost of integrating it was higher, so it's a little bit more labor intensive, but it did help us just get to know your borrower better. And from time and again, you'd see something and say, hey, you know, that doesn't square. And I'm reading about, you know, what it does is it triggers a more searching inquiry, right? And mm -hmm. on a specific, and from time to time, that influences your view of the credit worthiness of the trajectory of the issuer, and that flows through into you know, your relative value judgment on, on the issuer. Um, that's the general approach. I mean, that's what integrated ESG is. It's a materiality-based approach. Um, and we find it useful, and especially as the cost of injecting um, more kind of data sets into your system, you know, falls with big data and the rest of it. Um, it makes more and more sense 
not less. Um, the other piece of it, I would say, which is which is also linked up to kind of Breckenridge's approach to technology and the rest of it is, you know, SMAs, what's great about them is the customization aspects. And um, so increasingly, there are ways to help clients um, put their thumb on the scale uh, on a variety of kinds of issuances or um, mm -hmm. risks, um, or I think increasingly, we may even see opportunities, right? Um, yeah. So, so that's in the customization warehouse and that's that's interesting too and i think there's a lot of room to grow there yeah i'm glad you you mentioned that so you know obviously in preparation for this we, we were looking at the materials on the website and something that was interesting to me was sort of the net zero approach to portfolio management and it seemed like that was more applicable on the corporate side but you know is that something that is being requested to to be done on the municipal side as well uh not yet not yet. Um, and, you know, our uh, net zero asset managers pledge, um, you know, corporates are the only ones that fall fall under that. Uh, sure. Just to just to full disclosure on that. Yeah. Um, you know, we might have considered it for munis. I mean, the, the reporting and disclosure is so immature. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think ESG reporting is immature, I mean, net zero reporting is is that look like, you know, uh, standardized, you know, gap-based accounting. So, so, um, but I do think, I mean, I do think the carbon transition is a real thing, whether we get to net zero by 2050 or not. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but globally, the carbon transition is real and it's going to happen. It's going to come in fits and starts like we saw the Ukraine war kind of upended um, uh, some of the trajectory this year, at least in terms of the price of oil and the profits of the oil companies. Um, but it may have hastened the, the trajectory of, you know, a cleaner grid in Europe and a cleaner grid in the U.S. Uh, to get to, you know, from, from kind of global, um, you know, petro state kind of risks. Um, so that's going to happen. So the question is, is what economies are going to do better from that? Um, what kind of industries are going to do better? Is there a way to track that um, if there is? How does it uh, differ or not differ from economic metrics that you might be picking up? Uh, a lot to think about there. My guess is at some point over the next 35, 10 years, we'll, we'll start to see more of this. You do see some of the larger cities um, taking inventories of their uh, carbon emissions. Um, yeah. Accordance with uh, uh, the, the names escaping me, but um, the, the, the way one of the major international... Um, uh, monitors recommend structuring them. So, um, so we're going to see more cities do it. You know, there, there's been a lot of pushback, I'd say, against ESG, especially when it comes to munis. Um, and look, I mean, it doesn't help with the the latest news stories, given what's going on with the you know sort of um, pushing some underwriters out in Texas, and and now the governor of Florida coming out and and sort of making a stand against it. Has that led to some difficult conversations with clients or does that make you guys look forward and think about revamping approaches in that space at all? You know, um, candidly, no. Uh, so so we haven't heard a single from from a client that is interested in ESG that's that's in one of our sustainable oriented accounts. Um, yeah. And I can't or, tell you I'm surprised that's your answer. And I, I, I'm happy you actually said that because. We tend to make a very big deal out of when these things happen. And I feel like in the back of my mind, I always just think to myself, I don't think real accounts are actually bothered by any of this. No, so. no. And and what even, I mean, look, I've sat across the table from skeptical. There are less skeptical folks today than there were five years ago than there were 10. Um, and when you sit across the table, I remember one guy, you know, telling me, well, you know, why do we need to you know, focus on this? I said, look, you know. It was in the news that week. I said, we live in Boston. Boston's saying they may need a, to build a seawall for over $10 billion to protect the city. Yeah. I, said, I don't know if that makes sense. All I know is either <laughs> to borrow $10 billion, which is a credit issue, right? Sure. Or they're not going to borrow $10 billion, and maybe they should have, right? You know, that's credit issue. Or maybe these people are crazy, and they shouldn't borrow the $10 billion at all, and I need to look at that to make an evaluation because if they do borrow it, that's a waste of money, right? Like, like if people go, okay, I mean, it's, it's as long as you're warehousing all this stuff under the rubric of materiality and yeah. 
what do I need to know? Um, it's, it's fine. And then the, you know, the other way we do it is just through customization, which is just clients expressing a desire to price externalities or, um, to effectively subsidize, right. Certain activities that they want to subsidize, but that's just capitalism at work. That's not really anything. When we talked about standardization for, for like financial reporting, but there's also standardization for you know, ESG stuff too, right, Karen? Yeah. Is this one thing that we're seeing a lot, you know, a lot of negativity from from clients and speaking about ESG. Do you see is there is there any concern that investors will lose confidence in ESG from a standards perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and the the answer to that I think is is possibly yes. Um, I think you know you see it in the corporate space with SASB and some other uh, efforts where they they really are trying to kind of say, okay, what's material? How would you report on this? How do we make it standard, at least by kind of sector and subsector or what have you? Um, and my guess is, is that's kind of how things will mature in the muni space. I think the muni space is a little unique because of the um, inability of the federal government to strong arm the issuers into certain kinds of reporting because of the tower amendment. Um, yeah. But it'll... My guess is it'll increasingly get a little bit more standardized. Again, it all comes back to materiality. If you get unmoored from materiality, then this stuff can feel very haphazard um, because, because some of the metrics that you may have for, um, for some of the customizations right, uh, may not necessarily be you know, material to the, to the reasonable investor. That's un- candidly, that's unusual. But like... Yeah. Probably that could happen. Well, I think like some of the areas that get sort of knocked on the most are like airports, right? How they get sort of thrown into that ESG bucket when there's you know fuel guzzling planes coming and going at all hours of the day, right? It just right. it's hard to wrap your mind around. And so, like, what would you say to skeptics who who sort of always poke at that? So yeah, so I mean, we would just say like you know at any given time there's you know, behavior that you know you want to improve, right? Whether it's from a governance standpoint or it's from, um, you know, waste management or what have you. In this case, you're talking about carbon emissions, right? Um, so you'd say, well, wait a minute. In the airport space, people are going to fly, okay? So so if you're if you're trying to put a portfolio together, like everything's got a price, right? Yeah. You're trying to price the risk. So the airport that has no sustainability plan, that is maybe not thinking about not having a discussion about, you know, how to mitigate um, everything from noise pollution, right, which is something they've been doing for years, but some better than others, to the carbon emission problem. Um, in all things being equal over a long period of time, you know, maybe a little greater of a, of a credit risk may signify bad management, lack of foresight, um, exposure if they ever do start, part, start pricing carbon to, um you know, to higher costs. And so, you know, our approach is a best in class approach by sector. So it reflects that kind of view. Um, You know, we don't think, I mean, similarly, the other question we often get related to this is like, you know, what about green bonds, right? You know, um, you know, there was that, uh, I think it was an S&P rated um, Trinity Public Utility District out in California a few years ago, um, where they issued a green bond, I think it was for renewable purposes, they're located in this super high-risk wildfire area, right? So if you just buy bonds based on the green label and you throw them in a sustainable account, and then there was this obvious kind of ESG risk that yeah. had really bad fire exposure, and then they get like super downgraded, multiple notches because there is a wildfire. Now they have mm-hmm. a really for me. That to us is like you've got to do this holistic evaluation. Like the green bond thing is nice. That's not sufficient. Right. And so, again, it's a materiality based approach. And is everything done in house for you guys or or are you leveraging any of sort of the outside vendors when it comes to this space? So we will use some of the outside vendors um, where we like the data. I mean, our approach is to build a platform that we like that, um, you know, works if we find data we want to bring in. um, And then as well as if somebody's willing to provide some data that we can also pipe in. Looking at uh, fund flows, it seems that the ESG peak in terms of net inflows for the space came in 2021. Would you say that Breckenridge is seeing a similar trend? 
Um, say that again. You're saying to. So we there was a chart that was put out, I want to say, two days ago, and it showed net inflows into the ESG space, right? Just across I, all assets, corporate, okay. fixed yeah. income, equities. Yes. And it was a definable peak. Uh, what do you think, Karen? Like mid-2021? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, look, I, I think like our question when we were sitting down and sort of thinking about the conversation today is, you know, have you guys seen a similar trend as far as a slowdown in sort of new interest? That's a great, that's a great question. The short answer is, is I don't know. Okay. I just have not, um, I'd have to go look at our systems, not something I've looked at. I, I will say we certainly haven't gone backwards. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and there's definitely uh, been on our outsider immunities in the last couple of years, there's definitely been ongoing and and continued interest. My guess is it's still growing. I don't know if it's growing as fast. Um, I just I just haven't looked. Okay, let's uh, let's pivot to credit. Yep. Now that the we see the economy is slowing and emergency fund Fed funds are winding down, where do you see any potential cracks in the municipal credit coming from? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd, I I think I'm not alone in this. I'd look in a couple of different places. So the one would be kind of the high yield IDB spaces. Anybody's got to refinance, right, with higher rates. Mm -hmm. um, that's not a place where Breckenridge plays. We're high grade separate account manager, but I, I have a hard time believing you won't see some hiccups in there just because of the refinancing. Um, uh, the other ones, I think folks have talked about the hospitals um, and the higher ed uh, space. I mean, hospitals are really interesting, um, I think, because, you know, we can just all see the trajectory on a macro level, right, which is that um, you've got aging, right? You've got labor shortages. Um, yep. mm -hmm. People have been writing about this for a while. Um, you know, even folks who want to age in place, like where are we going to find all these home health aides, right? Like, oh, I mean, it's just, it's a real, it's, it's a real issue. Um, you got some COVID related burnout. Um, but fundamentally, there's just gonna be more people migrating onto government uh, uh, payers. A, a metric I never really see out there, but is, is useful to think about is if you add Medicare, Medicaid, the CHIP program, um, and then you add employer-paid state and local government and employer-paid federal government uh, premiums, right, all together. So essentially tax dollar funded, right, <laughs> uh, payments. It's, it was, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, but it was 53% of the total system in 2017. So it's got to be, I don't know, 55, 56, and it was growing. And that, what that just suggests is that the revenue is only going to grow so fast because we're mm -hmm. collectivizing that. And so there's an interesting, um, and then you don't get the, the mortgage um, uh, liens on these on these properties anymore, especially like in the A-rated space for hospitals. So I do think that's got a secular ring to it. But but what's nice is they report, at least the big ones and the rated ones, they report pretty regularly and, and you can sort of pick your spots. Um yeah, higher ed, kind of same kind of different demographic uh, profile, more competition, questioning of the value add in it, especially with low end wages coming up. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's where I would look. Um, looking out further, I do think we're definitely going to see some state and local governments, uh, you know, gave away too much in the form of uh, tax relief, you know, with the COVID dollars effectively, um, you know, overspending. Grew the, grew the bottom line and then are coming back to voters for, you know, one-time overrides or tax increases. You know, this may be next year or the following year. Um, and so you're going to see some structural deficits open up. But fundamentally, I mean, you know, we looked at, you know, when ARPA passed, and that was before the IJA and mm -hmm. the Inflation Reduction Act has anything in it. Um, I mean, it was about 40% of 2019 state and local tax revenue. Um, and in any given state, it was between like nine and 22% of total state and local government revenue. So then you add on the fact that then you had the IAJA. I mean, the system just got a lot of liquidity into it. Um, so, so I think, you know, I would say we're past peak for credit. I think it's only going to get weaker. I don't think we're going to have a really supportive federal partner. I think monetary policy is going to be, you know, tighter than um, than it was before, but fundamentally, there's enough there there in terms of liquidity in the system to 
certainly get us through this year. I mean, are you surprised at all? We saw the amount of upgrades in just municipal credit, um, you know, over the last two years. That's a great question. Um, uh, I guess I'm not surprised. I mean, the, you know, the thing with the rating agencies is, you know, their approach is ostensibly to be rating all asset classes, you know, uh, in the same way, right? Risk very of, difficult to do. Right, very difficult to do. Risk of default in the case of S and P, all times recovery in the case of Moody's. Um, and you know, we don't like that approach. Uh, we think you can look at a couple names pretty straightforwardly that have the same rating, and one just basic fundamentals, common sense, clearly has more risk than another. Um, but that's the challenge in the muni market. Um, I guess I'm not surprised based on their methodology, but I do think that'll probably unwind. Uh, to varying degrees over the next 24 months. Look, as a money manager, you know, obviously the buying new bonds for cash accounts coming in has to be on the forefront of your mind. And we're starting off the year down 30% year over year on primary supply. What are your thoughts on that going forward um, through the remainder of the year? Do you think this rebounds? Do you think we're just sort of... Uh, having another awful year when it comes to so, sales? I, yeah, I mean, look, we're down, like his point, we're down 30%, rebounding a little bit, like that makes total sense. Um, but I would say on a secular, I mean, I think there's a variety of reasons to believe supply is going to be low for a while. Yeah. Uh, so um, on the primary side, just to think the primary, so right, rates are up, right? So that's got to, that's, that's got to delay some projects. Sure. Uh, the converse of that, if you have reserves, the opportunity cost of spending them is higher. Right? So, right. Yeah. so, so that's, that's another problem. Um, if you look at real wages, right, the only sector that's had any meaningful growth in real wages since the pandemic is leisure and hospitality. Um, there's healthcare maybe slightly, but those people are working like dogs. I mean, these nurses are going on strike all the time because they're, over, you know, they're overworked and, and exhausted. Um, private sector wages are still as of last month, um, a half percent down. And so the reason I mentioned that is a willingness to pay problem. Um, you know, infrastructure in the U.S. has not been built, not because of a lack of financing and people who want to invest in the space. It's because a lack of voters <laughs> and ratepayers who want to approve projects and pay higher taxes and higher rates to fund improvements of water, toll roads, um, you know, bridges, schools, whatever. And so... That to me is is unlikely to change. Now, in the growing, like in Idaho, in Texas, in Florida, in places that are growing, um, sure, because people are moving in, they want a school, yada yada. But yeah. in about two thirds of the country, um, probably, probably not. So, so, and then you add on to the fact that the the reserves are flush, notwithstanding the fact that it's more costly to spend them down. Yeah. Um, you've got a little bit of a runway with the IAJA. Um, I just wouldn't be surprised if we just see this really kind of modest supply environment for for a while. I was shocked at how many bond ballots were approved last year. I mean, that really sort of caught me off guard, right? You have high rates, yeah, raging inflation, right? And it seemed like everybody went to the polls and was like, "Yep, sign me up, more bonds, we're good." Right, so, but I yeah. mean, you know, people are approving them. I mean, but as a, a where are they, you know, approving them? Are they approving them, you know, in Maine? Are they approving them? And, you know, so I think, I think where we tend to see the approvals is in faster growth places. Like, I don't think that's going to change. And then the other thing is, obviously, we didn't say the refundance. I mean, that was all on the new issue side. So the refundance yeah. is, is gone. And candidly, that's probably, you know, the bigger issue for now. But I guess I spend my more, more time thinking about, like, you know, how are they going to do it? And it is a problem because there's a deferred maintenance gap still. How about, uh, how about taxable munis? Is there any potential for a return in taxable muni sales? Yeah, that's an area that's just dead, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, right now, yeah. Um, so much of that was from, you know, doing uh, taxable advance for fundings. Um, and so now that that math isn't working, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't see the path, yeah. path forward on that exactly. But... Um, We'll see. You know, the rates can always. Look, I know we're, we're getting tight on time here and, and you know, we sort of finish up with this question with all our guests. But, you know, I have to ask, what are 
do one or two things that sort of keep you up at night. You seem pretty bullish and constructive on the market, so I don't know if you have anything that's sort of hiding under your bed there. But, I mean, if you do, please share with us. No, I mean, the thing that I think about most is, is candidly, is the credit environment and, like, what I'm kind of missing. Um, as I mentioned, I think there there's probably a lot more structural deficits out there that we just don't see. Um, I think the the reporting and disclosure around how the American Rescue Plan funds are used, um, how quickly they're being spent down, um, yeah. or alternatively, you know, tax cuts is very, is very clear. And I, um, and I also think, uh, you know, if, if we're going to be in a period where we do have persistent labor shortages, that's going to pressure the bottom line as we continue to come out of the pandemic. And uh, I, I think we're, we're approaching a space where we're going to go from big surpluses to more pressure deficits and, and management is going to be more meaningful in terms of a driver of uh, credit resilience. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is very near term, I, you know, the debt limit thing isn't, isn't clear to me exactly how that's going to be resolved. I do that. Yeah. Um, we're going to print a platinum coin, right? Yeah. Isn't that what we're doing? Okay. The solution okay. there. Um, they all feel very subpar, um, you know, thinking through what could happen in the muni market. Um, I mean, that the slugs, right, rallied the last time we had this because they were. Yeah. And that, so I don't know. I mean, you could have some dislocations in the Garvey market, possibly, or something like that. But again, it'll be resolved so quickly, uh, I, de- I think. Yeah. But that's minor. And then, you know, Related to that, though, it's big picture. I, I spend, my, I find, I spend a lot more time thinking about just the federal-state-local relationship the last few years, and um, it's an unprecedented amount of money that these that these local governments got. And as that winds down, and as the deficit needs to get dealt with, whether it's higher taxes, more borrowing, cutting spending, that's going to have impacts on state and the local government space from a credit standpoint, as well as potentially all the all the tax. Um, rules, whether it's the SALT deduction, whether it's changing private activity bond rules, whether it's altering the exemption on its face in some way. Um, you know, we just emerged from a decade of, of, you know, meaningful discussion about, you know, should we slap a 10% surtax on munis, right? In 2014, that was, that was a Republican. Yeah. Should we have a 28% cap on it? Um, uh, should we eliminate private activity bonds? Like these discussions are going to come back. The, the federal government's Fiscal condition is um, is just not on on a stable funding path, and so I always viewed the exemption as sort of looking under the the couch cushions for coins for the federal government. Though, right? I mean, yeah, they could find some money there, but well, you know, on the margin, it's they, they they have bigger areas where they're spending, right? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think that's right, but I mean, it's like uh, I mean, I think if you look at the the um, Joint Committee on Tax Estimate, right? It's like $290 billion before the private activity bonds, like over 10 yeah. years. Yes. So the other thing I think is different is the success of the Build America Bonds program did kind of prove that there's a huge, deep pool of buyers <laughs> for tax. Yep. As well yeah. as that. And, and those buyers are still around right now, but they're they're getting frustrated that there's no supply. Right. And so... Whatever the collective group of voices is uh, that has always prevented the tax exemption from being curtailed, you know, facially attacked, I think it's weaker than it used to be. Um, you know, you go back and you look at the history of the tax exemption, right? It, it essentially got to be a problem during the New Deal when the rates went up high enough that it was like, wait a minute, you don't have to pay tax on interest on state and local bonds? And, and ever since then, it's been... Um, periodically re-examined, uh, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. But th- there's a good argument to be made that, that um, munis would not be remotely as impacted as some people think if they went to a taxable market. There's, there's definitely problems with doing it uh, for, for a variety of reasons. But um, in my view, the biggest one is um, the uh, just maintaining the separation of the sort of state and local control over what gets funded. Um, But from a purely financial standpoint, there's reasons taxable muni market. And so 
given the federal government's condition, that's another thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about. That's a great point. Well, first of all, I mean, like, to the argument about the, the taxable ability, right? I mean, a lot of people don't realize that treasuries are state tax exempt, right? So you have that sort of similar argument. But right. I think, you know, or I'm just looking as, as an aside to that, I think there would probably be a lot more efficiencies in our market if we did away with the exemption. I mean, it's never going to, I don't think it's really going to happen. But, you know, I, I think about in terms, just like take Pennsylvania, right? You have hundreds of little school districts. They'd probably be better off all sort of aggregating their resources and borrowing one or two times a year from a state-led pool taxable-wise, right? Yep. Um, you know, no. More liquidity, deeper buyer base. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think that the folks who lose out are the smaller issuers who do gain advantage from, you know, a, a giant access to capital at, at, uh, with these tax-free rates. Like, you know, you can buy a double-A little school district that you never yeah. heard. You know, they yeah. get conceivably left out. The question is whether the liquidity generated by having trillions of dollars in global, you know, um, asset managers buying this stuff, um, you know, it would change the market radically. There's all sorts of things that have to be thought about um, if that ever happens. But again, the reason to think about it from an investor's perspective is just like the math doesn't add up at the federal level. And we have seen policymakers on both parties and both parties uh, propose, you know, uh, chipping away at the exemption. And that yeah. should tell people, especially with the backdrop of, you know, inequality as, as a kind of in this, in the zeitgeist, right? Like it's out there. Um, I think, I think it's something just to, it, that risk hasn't gone away. Well, look, if, if anything, our market has proven to be resilient. I think people thought the world was ending after they did away with advanced refundings. And here we are, you know, six years later, and we're, we're, we're doing pretty well, all things being equal. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Adam Stern, awesome. So happy you were able to join us today. Really appreciate the conversation. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And make sure to tune in for our next episode. It will be mid-March. So thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.